the sheer lack of imagination of we can envision ourselves on the moon but like the you know the misogyny stays the yeah, same yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. same gender structure like, exactly you know and it just and there's so much of that stuff you know yeah. it's like we can imagine these utopic futures but we can never imagine like desegregating our housing situation yeah. you know it's yeah. like like how firmly entrenched these power structures are in the psyche of people that it really sort of limits our ability to think about anything that could be outside of that. Hey listeners, welcome to Field Pod. This is a Field Projects podcast featuring show reviews, interviews with creatives and makers from artists to collectors, and just our general thoughts on life and good shit to fill your time with, whether that's films or books or daily rituals. I'm Chris Racanello, and I'm the co-director of Field Projects along with Jacob Rhodes, who you'll hear from in just a few minutes. But first, this is our very first ever podcast episode, and holy shit, this is a great episode to listen to. You'll first hear Jacob and I rant about what we're reading and doing and the shows and awesome studio visits we saw this week. Then we're going to dive into an interview with the artist featured in our current solo show, I Have Seen the Future, and that's the amazing Johanna Herr and her collaborator and co-author, the equally wonderful Kara Marsh-Scheffler. We talk the 1939 and 1964 World's Fairs, that's the basis of the exhibition, which took place in Flushing, New York. We talk about consumerism, capitalism, collaborations between and across mediums, and also the kind of divergent thought processes that make a good collaboration. Jacob and I will wrap things up for you after the interview with a short and certainly not extensive list of shows to go see that are mostly based on our friends and preferences. But first, our most recent open call for artists in residence has just closed on May 1st, so stay tuned for our announcement of our most recent resident picks. If you're curious about our residency program, come visit our current resident, photographer Stacy Kranitz, during our Chelsea Open Studios from May 20th to 22nd. That same weekend, I Have Seen the Future closes on May 21st, and we're open Thursday to Saturday from 12 to 6 p.m. through the end of that exhibition. We'll also have an artist roundtable on World's Fairs coming up at Field Projects, so if you do enjoy this episode and our conversation with Johanna and Kara, please be sure to keep an eye out for that and listen in. A special thanks to our current intern, Angelica Aranda, who's been super on the ball and handled the 50-plus people who came into the gallery last Saturday like a total pro. We really appreciate you, Angelica. All right, now, here's our weekly recap. I'll see you on the other side. What's up, Chris? <laughs> I'm sorry. My inclination is to laugh at you when you... All right, shall we start again? I don't know, man. We might just have to go with something eventually. (sighs) Anyways. Hey. Hey. So. How was your day today? 
today I went to Staten Island for the maybe third time in, in my your life. life. Wow. Wow, maybe it was only the second time in my life. Because I don't think I stepped on to Staten Island. I just took the ferry out there and the ferry mm -hmm. back. And so this is the third time. And we drove hmm. through Staten Island and went and did a studio visit. That's right. We did that together. <laughs> you were there, too. <laughs> I was there. So do you feel like it was an overall positive experience on Staten Island? What do you think about Staten Island? I don't know. The little bit that we saw was very suburban but also it's the middle of spring and so there's a bunch of pollen in the air that wants to kill me and so yeah tree murder it's like the real life m night Shamala movie the happening <laughs> always with the fucking movie references <laughs> the uh yeah i thought staten island was great it was definitely one of those places that i go to that i think immediately what would my life be like if I moved here? And I think it would be kind of nice in the beginning. But then you're in the middle of fucking suburbia surrounded by a bunch of Trump voters. Whatever. Um, the botanical gardens are beautiful, though. But also trying to kill you. I understand yeah. the pollen this time of year is, like, pretty harsh. But overall, yeah. I think it's a pretty beautiful place. Yeah, there's um, a lot of trees, a lot of nature. Yeah. And um, what I would consider mansions, but aren't mansions at all. Well, they were like up a hill. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Automatically a mansion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they had upstairs and downstairs. Fuck yeah, they did. And you could look at them from the floor and you were like, oh, if only I could be up there. And then you go, no, I don't really want to be up there, actually. <laughs> at least that was my internal dialogue <laughs> that happened. <laughs> so we went to Staten Island. Did you do anything else this week before we dive into our awesome studio visit that we did while we were there? I think I worked on field project stuff. You worked on field oh, project yeah. shit. You worked for an artist, didn't you? No, I worked for a gallerist. And this gallerist is, after many years, cleaning out their basement and moving a bunch of Ooh, their you got artwork. To see all the secrets of the gallerist basement. Yes. It was fun. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Was there like, was it dirty or clean? It was both. Oh, hmm. what a diplomatic answer. <laughs> yeah, uh, everything was wrapped, though. Everything was packed, but cool. it was still a basement. Yeah. It's dirty. I guess uh, I should say that this is Jacob Rhodes, the founder of Field Projects, founder and director and blah, blah, blah of Field Projects. Co-director. This is <laughs> Chris Racanello, the co-director of Field Projects and all around brain academic side of the brain the brawn everything <laughs> <laughs> the face you're the face what are you talking about <laughs> you got the face of field projects anyways um this is us hey to everyone who's listening we are going to chat a little bit about what we did today and the rest of this week more and uh, I guess we'll also have to talk a little bit about our shows that are both up right now and that are coming up. And then after that, we'll hear an awesome interview with two of the people that we've just recently been working with. Yes. Chris, what are you reading that is not medieval? Why does it have to be not medieval? Because you are doing a lot of reading that is for your academic medieval PhD. And then you're doing other reading that's almost for pleasure. That's 
<laughs> Almost there. I mean, you know, the only thing that I have for pleasure reading right now um, that I'm, like, actively looking at is the book that you bought me a while ago, which is called American Cults. It's a comic book illustrated by a bunch of cool artists. Highly recommend that. I'm also reading Making Sex by Thomas LeCure, another falling asleep at night book, so it's going pretty slow. I think that I kind of am confusing parts of it with Leah Devon's Shape of Sex, also another really great book, both about gender and the history of gender identity versus sex and the confusions and constructions between those things. Um, making Sex really does start out with examining the one sex model versus the two sex model. And uh, I guess the easiest way to explain that is just one sex model is the belief that the exterior genitals and interior genitals are fundamentally the same and an inversion of each other. So it's seen as a spectrum of interior exterior genitalia versus the two sex model, which sees male and female genitalia as being entirely separate and different from each other. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And again, very much like a hot book to read right now or whatever, but is very good. And I do recommend it to anyone who's interested in anything to do with gender identity or anything like that. What about you? Are you reading anything or watching anything? Maybe we can talk about watching stuff after. Um, but if you're okay. reading or listening to anything. Well, I actually do a lot of listening to audiobooks because I'm dyslexic. Yeah, <laughs> but, talk uh, about the dyslexia. <laughs> yeah, a lot of dyslexia never goes away. I'm reading or listening to The Ritual by David Pinner, and this is the book that The Wicker Man was based on, but oh, it's cool. very diff. It's not very different. It's just so much better. Though I really love The Wicker Man, oh. the movie, um, not the Nicolas Cage one, the older one. I think it's in the 70s, 76 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the lighting in that is really great. Yeah, it's just a fun, and it's also, uh, one thing that I kind of love about it is that it's it's a question mark on whether it's a musical or not, because <laughs> music, because like folk music is used so much in the plot <laughs> that it's like a, a character will start singing about something, like one of the women is supposed to seduce the police officer, and so she is knocking outside of his room and making noise to try and like entice him out of his room, and he's doing his best not to not to leave his room so anyways th but this one is much more there's a lot more weirder stuff and there's a lot more internal dialogue the policeman in this one is constantly on the edge of giving in to the pagans and like just like joining the orgy he's like super angry about all sorts of things and um, so it's i don't know it's a lot of fun it's really fun actually cool i had no idea you were reading that yeah that's really great. And are you almost done with it, or you just started it, or what? Um, I listened to it about four times. And... <laughs> <laughs> so you're done with it, but you're <laughs> because, redoing it. Because okay. I, well, also yeah. because I'll, uh, fall asleep I'll fall or asleep, yeah, or yeah. I'll suddenly realize that I've been like thinking about something else for the last 30 minutes or something. Hmm. I keep jumping through books. So since I hmm. have never listened to an audiobook, um, I constantly pick books up and read parts of them and put them back down especially like when I'm going to bed mm -hmm. um so I'm the opposite of you in the sense that like maybe you fell asleep and kind of listened to it and dreamed about it I'll like read a section of a book and then fall asleep and have crazy dreams about this like half-read story that I'm kind of completing mm. or something yeah um yeah. 
Yeah, so just different. I've been listening to that meditation app that you Ooh. recommended. <laughs> what is that called? It's like the fucking... Something It has a prayer bowl on it and... Insight timer. Insight, Insight timer. timer. That's what You're it's right. called. Yeah. You know, it's very helpful for going to, to sleep go back for to me. sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. That sounds great. I loved The Wicker Man. I should probably read this book. But again, no time. It's... I should listen to audiobooks because I listen to so many podcasts. Yeah. But, you know, all of my podcasts are like nerdy or political or true crime or something. You love nonfiction. I love fiction, too. I just, like, haven't made space for it in my life in a long time. And the person we did a studio visit with today also loves nonfiction, but loves fiction of spaces. I feel like that's a really good entry point into talking about her work. Mm. Do you want to start? Because you're the one who suggested we do a studio visit with her, and she had applied to our open call. Yeah, like, years ago, she had applied to our open call. She was in a couple shows... Yeah, so we did a studio visit with Siobhan McBride. Yeah, I don't, the the paintings are so, they're gouache, and so they're super matte, and they're of interior spaces, and she's done a couple people, but mostly it's strange, sort of, almost collaged spaces, and like, they glow like a, a computer screen, more than anything to me. Like a digital image, right? Yeah. Yeah. But they're not a digital image, Because the obviously. light is so... The gradations of light are really sharply demarcated from each other. It is not necessarily mm. like a clear, perfect gradient. Like, she likes to fragment light the same way that she likes to fragment space. And Siobhan's work is just very, like, interested in the uncomfortableness of space. And she does that a lot through the fragmentation. She does that a lot through the kind of separating out or collaging together of spaces that maybe shouldn't go together or don't normally fit together. Why don't you describe your favorite painting? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, well, my favorite painting... It was super good. I don't know it was the... super weird. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I just had a moment where I, I, don't, I had a... A moment with this painting, I guess. Mm, I love that one. I love that one. I love that one. Jacob is scrolling through his phone right now, and That's I'm just it. just giving love to all of these paintings. Uh, so all I right, guess look at this shit. It's amazing. It's mostly gray and black and white, um, and it's of a corridor with a door at the end, and there's these a vase with flowers in it, and then there's a garland of flowers. And the thing with uh, McBride's work is that it's oh, there's so much taped off work that she'll tape off a leaf and then do like a weird gradation through it and then tape off the next leaf and do like a different sort of color or gradation. So this one has every leaf or flower on this garland is like a different color. It's but they're all sort of muted reds, browns, oranges, greens. Yeah, they're really distinct from each other because they do have that taped off effect and then they're kind of flattened inside of themselves. But then the way that the light is hitting it, like our spaces are so believable, but they're so fake and kind of collaged together. I yeah. really love them. They're, it does feel like digital collage. And yet also, as soon as you look at them, they're completely painted. Like you can yeah. see that they've been painted and drawn the new ones especially, or like, look at the shadow on the far end. Yeah. You know, like, you can see the wash of that. And you couldn't get that effect digitally at all. No. 
but I kind of like that they mislead you. That's, I think that's the tension that's really enjoyable about them, right? Is that the croppings are really strange. The, the, um, she designs it. (laughs) Jacob is making a rectangle motion with his finger (laughs) on the podcast. I just need to let everyone know. Um, yeah, the, the, um, God, you're such a Californian. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Speaking of Californians, there's a grumpy Seven Dwarfs character holding a lamp in this painting, which is a... Snow White. Kitsch. Yeah. Kitsch. Mm -hmm. Kitsch from Snow White uh, that's on the mantle with these, like, flowers and this garland. Anyways, it's... There's something about this beautiful and cold kind of painting that I don't know makes me feel very grandma-ish and like you can tell this person is sort of trying to beautify their area it seems sincere maybe that's one of the things and the way that it's painted anyways I had a moment with this painting and I love it Jacob fell in love Oh, it's the end of the day, friends. (laughs) We are back from our break. Uh, We had to take a desperate ice cream and beer break. And we return. And we were talking about Siobhan's work and Siobhan McBride. We were talking about your favorite painting, which I think is a pretty fucking great painting. However, there were many other excellent works, and I really feel like the one of the apartment building that's like melting in the rain is totally amazing. That light, the stoplight, like that looks nothing like a stoplight. It's shaped like a Pac-Man with little legs. And it's just a swipe (laughs) of yellow with a swipe of this like, it's not even red, it's like a pink. But it totally reads as a stoplight in the rain being looked at through a car window. Yeah, I was going to say we have to explain how that's how how the painting is framed again. It's framed image... from like the inside of a car. Yeah. As if you're looking out and it's raining, but like torrential rain. So you don't see individual droplets and it's just like made the world into this wiggly mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's one of my favorite paintings that she had. Yeah. We just had a great talk with her, too. Yeah. Yeah, so I really enjoyed talking to her, and then we went and walked around and desperately tried to find food at Snug Harbor. Could not find it. If you go to Snug Harbor, know that the food is not at the place that Google Maps says that it is. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be fooled. It says that the food is in the A building, but Snug Harbor is like this giant complex of buildings and the food is actually like, if you just follow the main line of like the pebbled street down into the center, you'll find the food. But we didn't know that. So <laughs> by the end of the studio visit, I was very hangry. And so was Jacob, but I was more hangry. You were more like, I'm dying from all of the trees around us. So yeah. I, um, had, I had other issues. Yes. So then we were surrounded by like screaming children and trying to get our food and waiting for it it was pretty intense and then we went into what did we go to after that oh we went to the museum at snug harbor what did you like there did you see anything that you liked there um they had some really nice older paintings that were sort of folk art oh yeah i saw my first clementine hunter paintings there were three of them there it's a zinnia looking at you Mm. and uh i thought that was a really great painting actually 
you were not so into the like picking cotton painting, but no, I thought that one I like was really good. The flower really good. one was pretty good. But yeah, it's like black flat a black background with these flowers, but then they're kind of painted like as if she was afraid of letting the petals touch the stems, and there's like these little gaps in the black. I don't know. Right. That was really great, and they really feel like they're the looking colors. at you. Yeah. Yeah, between the flower and the plant itself. But she was born in 1886, yeah. and she died in 1988. Um, I don't know why, but those dates stand out to me, so I remember <laughs> them. <laughs> because I was like, holy shit, she was so old. Like, she lived for such a long time. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then we also saw the, like, main show that's up there right now is Jennifer Angus, which is this Magicata. Magicicada? Magicicada? <laughs> Am I saying that right? <laughs> yes. um, yeah, that's up for a little while still. And it was basically this pink room filled with cicadas tacked to the wall in patterns with other insects and other cicadas. There are many types of cicadas there um, inside of jars. And she did these kind of like bell jar installation-y things. Very much like victorian cabinet of curiosities type of thing um i really thought the most interesting part of the show is that the paint on the walls the pinkish red paint which was very kind of purposefully material it was not ground very well like the pigment particles themselves were very large is because it in fact is not a pigment but it's made out of lac beetles so it's lac paint the same kind of material that makes shellac so I thought that was like super interesting, but otherwise I kind of uh, felt a little bit let down by it. It was super fun and interesting and would be like a great thing to take people to, but I didn't feel like it was, yeah, it I don't know. It wasn't very critical or anything. Like there wasn't, yeah. there wasn't really a thesis, so to speak. Well, it felt like she, she wanted to say the thesis is insects are really important humans will die without them if all of the insects went away but then at the same time she's like using all of these dead insects it just seemed like a weird clash of the two things that she wanted to talk about which were how important insects are to humanity but then she's using this kind of colonialist language this like cabinet of curiosity that's like this comes from the bad origins of science, in my opinion. That's about, like, the belief that you can catalog everything in the world, and therefore, if it's cataloged and labeled, it's understandable. Um, and that is completely the language that she's using in this show. And I just feel like that is so antithetical to this idea that, like, every individual organism is special and important. Um mm -hmm. And that the visual language that she's employing to talk about that is just absolutely at odds with the idea that she wants to convey. Even though, like, it's totally a fun show. It's, like, yeah. bright and colorful. <laughs> like, the insects are cool to look at. There's, like, snakes in jars. Yeah. You know, there's whatever. beautiful right? patterns <laughs> Like, there's made beautiful out of... patterns. Like, it's fun to go look at cabinets of curiosity that have, like, dolls and insects and, like, feathers inside of them. Um, yeah, little maquettes or yeah. little... Anyways, how do you feel about it? Because I'm, I'm like going on a rant about how I feel about it. I think I kind of, I kind of felt that way pretty quickly about it. I think I left the exhibition like three or four times and came back, and you were still sort of, you know, exploring it. Um, I did enjoy the walls were painted that that pink color, and then there was cicadas. 
pinned to the walls and and she made all of these patterns with them that could have gone somewhere interesting i thought but it was you know it was nice to look at yeah agree i mean it is like nice to look at and i think it's still interesting and worthwhile to go they have a giant what was it uh mastodon <laughs> that's there oh, yeah. i mean it's like the largest collection of cicadas one of the largest collections of cicadas in the world of all of these different types you can go and see the new york cicadas that are there inside <laughs> yeah. of one of the drawers you know they're like cataloged like that so i don't know it's definitely an educational interesting exhibit but i do feel like the method of display is at odds you could do so many other things to say, to show how important insects are to humanity and vice versa. And it's also very anthropocentric. Um, I don't know. There's like a lot of problems with it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I did spend a long time in there. I'm sorry that I made you wait. But, you, you know, go. I just was like, yeah. uh, I wanted to think through what she was doing. I think it was good that I sat with it for a while. It's always good to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I have less patience for artwork than you do. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, think... you really liked that other painting too, didn't you? The that was upstairs at Snug Harbor. Yeah, the with the beer party one. Yeah, beer party, <laughs> such a good name. So there's a boardwalk. It's on the beach, um, and there's just everybody's drinking a beer. And you liked it because you said it reminds you of embroidery, of embroidery, right? Yeah, because the the paint, it was like little small people and it looked like embroidery mm. to me. It was very thickly laid on. It's thickly laid on. It's kind of awkward. It looks very weird and funny. Yeah. I liked this bridge over Dizzy Bunker, the Staten Island one. Mm. Paul Karanikas? <laughs> Paul Karanikas, I think. He's Greek. Um, and I just enjoyed, like, the sort of thick, burlapy kind of surface that this is painted on. And then it's got this, like, super crazy pink sky tone that's, like, casting light onto this landscape. But then the sky is actually blue. I don't know. It's just great. It's photorealist painting. Yeah. It's of uh, Fort Wadsworth which is this big military installation that's part of the National Recreation Area. Anyways, um, I think it's really interesting, the sort of circular steps going down into the ground where this bunker is, that kind of like mimicking the bridge, which has this arc to it. Yeah, I don't know, the sky, the colors remind me of the studio visit I did earlier this week with Natalie Waddington, who's um, got a show at Dallas Contemporary right now, and... She reached out to me. She was in one of our um, shows a while ago that she had. I think it was an online show. Super crazy fun paintings that are all about the interaction between humans and animals and space. And she's also doing collaging the colors of the sky of Texas because she moved during the pandemic uh, out to Texas from New York and was really impressed with the colors of the sky she works from making drawings and digital collages on the iPad, but then translating them. She doesn't project them or anything. It's just like straight up looking at it and then retranslating the composition onto the canvas. And I think they're super cool. They're very bright. Um, they're very structured space, almost like jigsaw puzzle compositions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The space is very flattened. There's a sky... 
like a house or a sky, some trees, a house, 30% of the top of the painting. And then the rest of the painting is almost like you're looking down on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's multiple different perspectives that happen in the painting. Yeah, and there's like a dog laying on its back and then a person pulling water or cupping water out of the pool. And then I guess these are drops. Of... Yeah, I think this one's called Pool and Fall or something like uh, that. Like uh-huh. the names are all really deadpan, which I super <laughs> love because they're such bright, like fun, colorful paintings. And then it's like Pool at Night <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I like that she's really pared down the number of things that she uses as elements in the painting itself, right? There's a dog, there's leaves, there's a house. The house is always at a more distant level than the people. Like, it's very um, formulaic in a lot of ways, and yet it's always new and playful in each different painting. There's a lot of L shapes in the composition, too, which I think is, like, kind of tricky um, because it can be a really simple composition, so it's hard to make it exciting and unexpected, but I think she does a really good job of that. Yeah, they have a zaniness to them while still being about front lawns. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's right zaniness but about the front lawn uh, about being stuck in your fucking house during covid i mean like it kind of is i think uh in a lot of ways and also moving somewhere new and being like interested in the lighting we talked about that with Giovanni today too like how specific different places landscape light is Um, And how that affects you as an artist and the ways that you're like thinking about and wanting to make work and the different ways that the coldness of night looks different in different places and things like that. Yeah. Or like she was saying, the shadow, Mm -hmm. uh, the the interior of a house and the blueness of the interior of the house because of the yellowness of the sun outside. So speaking of interior... Our gallery was just painted. Oh, that's true. Green. I didn't think about that. <laughs> ah, what a tricky transition. <laughs> uh, no, but really, we the gallery was painted. And I'm excited to talk to the artist about that. So, our current show is I Have Seen the Future. And it's a pretty fucking awesome show. I agree. It is an awesome show. You've got spinning maquettes of pavilions. You've got this everything green. She she tiled the whole floor. And she tiled the fucking floor. It's wild. She made wallpaper. She also replaced our usual curtain that Chris hates. Thanks fucking God. <laughs> oh my God. It's the best thing anyone's ever done to the curtain. For real. It's so good. Well, she's replaced it <laughs> with uh, her yes, own version the of the thing. curtain. For the curtain is to be gone. (laughs) I think we should have open storage and should be having just plexiglass in front of. Anyways, we'll talk about this another time. (laughs) Yes. So upcoming for you is our interview with Johanna and Kara. Okay, cool. Okay, so hey everyone again. 
You are here with Jacob Rhodes from Field Projects and with Chris Racanello, that's me. And we're also here today with Johanna Herr and Kara Marsh Scheffler. So right now at Field Projects, we have Johanna Herr's solo exhibition uh, called I Have Seen the Future. And Kara Marsh Scheffler and Johanna also collaborated on and co-wrote a book that's the guide of the World's Fair, as well as Kara working on the wall text and some of the didactics of the show. So thank you for being here with us today, guys. It's one of the things I like to ask people all the time is how did you get your title? So Johanna, how did you come to take the title artist? And Kara, how did you end up thinking of yourself as an author? Was it always that way? Did you always know? Um, hello, I'm Johanna. Um, so I am an artist and all of the sculptural objects uh, and the installation of the show is my practice. Um, and then the book is co-authored and designed and created with Kara. In terms of how I would just, or how I got my title, I mean, I, I would call myself both an artist and an educator and a designer. And maybe I don't like the word humanitarian. But anyways, someone who helps run a nonprofit, <laughs> all in one. Um, in terms of like being an artist, I think that I decided to shift from identifying mostly as a designer to being an artist super early on in my undergraduate career because I realized that I couldn't say the things that I wanted to say through a totally just commercially driven design practice. And so I sort of switched from what originally was fashion actually to fine arts. And then since then, I feel like I've been claiming the title of artist. Very cool. And Kara, how about you? Um, so, I mean, I'm a writer because I like words and <laughs> I've always just been a very text-driven, texty person and um, I love books and I always wanted to write them and um, that's, you know, there are other dark arts that I dabbled in, you know, artistically, but um, I, um, I, I've always been a writer, I've always been a word person and, um, and I would say that what's probably salient here is that a lot of the um, material that I studied, especially when I was in college, um, like medieval poetry and Weimar, um, you know, sort of theory and publications really just, you know, reinvented the wheel every single time that something happened, nothing was taken for granted. And the presentation of the written word was always something that was very important. I've always really been drawn to artist books and to that kind of writing where the format in which it's produced is something that's very chosen, that's very deliberate and um, often collaborative because, you know, I'm not a designer. So um, I'm not, and Joanna isn't, you know, limited to only thinking in the, uh, you know, media that we make our livings in. So I think that I have these thoughts that are visual and I can share them and she can help manifest them and she has plenty of thoughts that are verbal that, you know, come my way too. So that kind of confluence I think really keeps me on my toes. So yeah, but um, I also, uh, you know, write essays and do things that are easier to explain to people, uh, you know, in a, like cocktail conversations. So yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I mean, this is something I think about all the time, right? Like, academics could live or die by the designers that they work with. Like, <laughs> um, you know, it's something like if you have a, the most disappointing thing is like when you have someone who's a really great writer and their book is the ugliest thing you've ever seen. 
in the world or whatever, you know, like vice versa too, right? Like the writing is excellent, the graphics are bad or the graphics are bad. Like it's just such a problem. Um, So this kind of collaboration is great. And also like exactly like you said, I, I myself am an art historian because I hate being stuck in one discipline. So you've both kind of described yourselves as having more than one title. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking of my experience with books and there's a Chris Krause's I Love Dick was this yeah. little tiny book that was like cut wrong and like the, the text <laughs> was crowded into it. Uh, this yeah. is probably the first edition or something like that. And that's the one that I read. And I remember just thinking how terrible, like how hard it was to read and like that I didn't um, pay attention that much to design and the way and give credit to graphic designers. And then that was that was some proof of of my arrogance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's actually a good point, too, is I wanted to ask both of you how you actually ended up collaborating with each other. Um, because it's hard to find someone that you work with well, and like any collaboration is super tough to do. So I wanted to know, how did you end up working together? Um, like, did you find common interests? Did you come to each other through something like totally outside of your fields? And who has uh, the bigger ego too? That's oh. just inclusive. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we just saw some finger pointing that I will not repeat. <laughs> um, some winking. Uh, but yeah, no, but basically I was um, sort of stalking Joanna's work during deep lockdown because uh, we met in a very deliberate way, which was through our friends uh, Sarah Jones and Natalie Baxter. They decided to have this, um, you know, salon group or a group of women would kind of come and do studio yeah. visits and all come together. And also I'm the one with the memory. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, but basically the thing is, but yeah, but basically we were, I was included in this group, um, as kind of the token writer. They had a couple of people who came in we did these studio visits. So the two of us sort of began, you know, seeing each other at openings and seeing each other around. And I've always been sort of art world adjacent. Uh, My first job in the city was as an intern at Printed Matter. So, uh, you know, and that was adjacent to all of those interests that I had as an undergraduate. So I've always loved the art world and kind of love how project-based it is. And, uh, you know, anyway, we would see each other around and then the lockdown happened. And I think we, uh, you know, began having those conversations on like, what was it, house party that everybody was talking on? And Joanna was posting more and more of the work that she was working on. And I was just like looking at these rugs that she was doing that were Afghan war rug based and, um, you know, used those visual strategies. And essentially I was so angry because I just kind of quit a job. I didn't have a good project that I was working on at the time. And I was just like, shit, this is so perfect. Like she's just like sitting there tufting, you know, like, and like, it's just like making these rugs that are, and they're so great. And I was just weirdly like nose out of joint annoyed at that. And then one day, cause I was talking to her about it a bunch. We, um, went out for drinks and she asked me well, to this write. this is also lockdown. Yeah, so this is lockdown. part of why you were jealous. Yeah, like yeah. This idea. exactly. Like I just didn't have, sh- well, yeah, I had things to do, but you know, anyway. But basically um, what wound up happening was like that the following September, September of 2020, uh, she asked me to uh, write the curatorial essay for her solo show at Elijah Wheat. And I said, yes. And then three glasses of wine later, because Afghan war rugs were actually available at Sears.com. I was like, what if we wrote a Sears catalog about the rugs? So 
So we did this kind of Sears catalog on bath salts, dystopian, like internet shit show Sears catalog that kind of exploded out the themes from each rug with critical text and with like very wacky layouts. And, uh, you know, and again, like we, there's actually a spread at the end of it that has like some like Benjamin and Krakauer and John Hartfield on it, you know, so it was kind of like taking that influence and, you know, putting it all into one place together. And um, the collaboration has continued into two more books and there will be um, a fourth one in September. So, yeah. Super cool. Um, and I wanted to ask both of you about school. So did you go to school for art or for writing? Both of you? Um, can you just give us a quick overview of your background with that? Hers is going to be better, so she should go first. Or <laughs> should mine, right? Maybe I should go first. I don't know. I just, I just had an undergraduate degree, um, but um, I went to Princeton, and they had this extraordinary creative writing department. It was part of the reason that I was never drawn to an MFA program, because it just, the roster of professors that I had, it just kind of, <laughs> it was just one of those things where it's like, we're going to do this again somewhere else. And I, yeah, I don't know. I just never was really drawn to getting an MFA for the reasons of just kind of accruing a lot of debt and maybe throwing a novel at an agent and maybe not. And um, yeah, I just had a really great experience um, with that creative writing department and I was in comparative literature as well. So um, I did, um, what, what did I do? French, Italian, German and Old Provençal, which, uh, you know, the lucrative one, uh, as my parents yeah, used to say. Cool. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah. And, uh, and I'm like, that's amazing. You're a nerd on this. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is a bonding moment. Yeah. So, so yeah. that was, so that was basically that, you know, and I just uh, never went back to school. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I heard that yours is cooler, Johanna. So <laughs> um, I don't think so. Um, I went to Parsons for undergrad. As I mentioned before, I had originally thought I was going to go into fashion. I was super hardcore making all of my own clothes and making yeah. everybody's prom dresses. And my first job was as a bridal seamstress in Amish country and like where I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So I was really hardcore like into that. And then as basically as soon as I started undergrad at Parsons, uh, I was like, no, thank you to fashion. <laughs> I just, I mean, to put it bluntly, like I met everyone else in that department and I was like, yeah, no, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to be part of that world. Uh, and I had been kind of forced to create this fine arts portfolio as part of my application because even though Parsons is known as a sort of fashion and design school, you actually couldn't, they had a very traditional portfolio process. So you could, I couldn't submit any of the clothing that I had made as part of my application. So in that process, I realized like, oh, actually I really like this more traditional fine arts kind of stuff. And so it was an easy decision for me to kind of transition into the fine arts department. Then uh, I got my MFA in sculpture from Cranbrook, which I really loved, which is in Detroit uh, and is kind of a interesting, like almost more of an old school, like European model where there's yeah. no, Technically, no professors, no te like no grades and no classes, uh, and that you pay thirty thousand dollars to go to. Um, <laughs> but, but it's really very community based. So it has this amazing historic campus that's designed by our Sarnen, and just it's just absolutely gorgeous arts and crafts movement built like historic landmark buildings. 
but each of the departments has like a head of the department and then you have like a kitchen inside of each of the departments and the studios and it's really like about like staying there and, and like living and working and um, collaborating together. And then of course there's all this different sort of programming that happens. So even though it's like, it sounds really loose in terms of like, oh, there's no classes or no grades and no real professors, it's really, you can be as like busy or as not as you want to be. Whereas someone like myself who's just a chronic like overachiever slash like- um, Workaholic. Workaho oh yes, that's yeah. what it's called, yeah. workaholic. Um, you know, I, I I was just like going to every lecture and every crit group meetup and everything, you know, and I, I like secretly put a blow up mattress in my studio and would like sleep there at night because I'd be, you know, so. Yeah, I love that you forgot the word workaholic. You're like, it's just called life, isn't it? Like, what are you talking about? It's called you sleep in the studio until you finish the MFA. So. What is a weekend? Yeah. I mean, what is a weekend anyway? Yeah. <laughs> but I also, I got to, I have to plug this because um, this woman changed my life, but my mentor there was Heather McGill and just one of the smartest, fiercest, most amazing people and artists and mentors that you could have. So that I felt really lucky to have caught her in the program. Um, she retired like very shortly after I left, like the next year, I suppose. So it was sort of this amazing moment to also be able to study under her, so, yeah. That's really awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, I've heard such good things about Cranbrook and community. So uh, it's nice to actually hear that from you directly too. And I guess that's also sort of takes us into the question of, you've had really different backgrounds and really different interests. So how did this specific project end up coming about where you wanted to work on the World's Fairs? And how did you decide to pick the two World's Fairs, right? <laughs> Look at this. So someone had pre previously asked us this and I looked at them dumbfounded and had nothing to say because I have no memory, as Kara said. And I literally had no idea how we had come about this project. And then through that conversation, I my Kara jogged my memory, so now I know. So I will answer this. <laughs> um, originally, it's been a very circuitous route. And originally, I had been kind of looking a lot at brutalist architecture and looking at sort of like Stalinist sort of architecture and that having sort of a visual relationship with a lot of... Um, like housing projects and, and things in terms of like urban renewal, quote unquote, in the US and these like strange sort of parallels through these visuals of these like very stern buildings. Um, that kind of like one thing led to another and I ended up at the World's Fair in terms of the 1939 World's Fair actually being this moment where you have this, um, all of the design of the fair was this kind of you could say, it, I don't know if you'd call it brutalist, but it had this sort of like Stalinist sort of uh, aesthetic to everything. And I had been talking with Kara originally about sort of like Robert Moses and urban planning, and we had been going back and forth, and it was sort of this nebulous idea that I wasn't sure exactly how it was going to shake out. And then right. I had this moment of like, oh, wait a minute, the World's Fair is this really, really sort of interesting thing, again, particularly of this architecture. And I remember I called her up, and I was like, and I was also thinking about like Levittown at the time, because again, it was very like urban, like the violence of utopia and the violence of urban planning and like how we come about cities and suburbs. And I called her up one day and I was like, I think, like, is the World Fair interesting? Should we do something that somehow is, or, you know, I was like, I'm also somehow found myself here. 
And then... And then, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just kind of... I was saying that it was this strange confluence where, um, you know, it was like the Cold War never ended and that was something that we wanted to talk about and we were really interested in talking about the legacy of Robert Moses. And it's like those things literally come together in Flushing. And then... My own, I mean, my own biography was completely dictated by a landscape that uh, Robert Moses um, came up with, essentially, and the way that everyone in my family met each other and the way that, you know, they basically absorbed culture and um, came, like, my dad was born in 1950 in Bushwick and moved out to Levittown, and um, my family is just completely wrapped around this project in 9,000 ways, and uh, the essay at the end of the book is basically about that, and that this uh, you know, this book for me, in a way, is a biography of circumstances and about how the world that I'm living in now came to be, essentially. And it just, it's, it was really weirdly a personal thing to hit upon. And of course, my dad went to the World's Fair like 12 times. And, uh, you know, I went to Epcot Center right after it opened, which basically is the continuation of the World's Fair. And I went there a bunch as a kid. And um, I just really felt it was close to the bone material that also happened to be these things that we'd been talking about doing a project around. So that was the alchemy of it for me. And uh, yeah. It, yeah, it was great. And I think it's happened a couple of times in our collaboration where I am, I'm a really nonlinear thinker, shocker there. Um, but so I'm thinking about a lot of things all the time, all at once. And often like I know that there's these punctuation points that are of interest and they have something that I can't totally articulate and I don't, but it's like oh I want to use that and I don't know wh how it's going to manifest but I feel like Kara's really good at like I'm like throwing shit at her and she's like oh that hold up let's pause and this is like like being able to actually give articulation to something that I'm not really sure exactly like what what's the rub yeah. like what's the you know yeah no and I think that because I am a linear thinker and I'm very decisive to that her kind of gestalt thinking and bringing all of these things into the room and also just saying but we can't leave that behind you know so there's a dialogue that happens there as well and then the other thing about both of us is that you know Joanna is such an educator and um, is very 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 interested in um, you know the meanings behind any piece of material that she's looking at and the historical context and how to communicate that to an audience. So like politicized art is a very natural fit for her. And I'm, I'm a history nerd that I just never have forgotten anything that I've read, um, except for some of my own writing. We were having a conversation earlier, but anyway, but I just absorb a lot of material and, um, my brain goes into strange nerd holes all the time and just kind of stays there and keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And I'm especially interested in American history and this whole legacy of the American century that we had and um, that we had that we have, present tense. And, um, you know, I think that uh, her values as a person and as an artist really kind of align with all of my interests in a way that's great. And, you know, we kind of um, have been able to, uh, you know, make from that yeah I mean you can super see that in the structure of the show right like there's this very linear the pavilions are the touchstones like going through the exhibition but then the pavilions themselves are like really wild and bring a lot into themselves I mean even like I don't know I was thinking about I think the first the pavilions also structure the guidebook too so it's like the first chapter I think is the white flight one right and that's like right in the corner when you walk into field projects and you look um and I wanted to ask you you know there's 
first of all, those pavilions are the touchstones, so I'm going to ask you a couple of things about them. But there's also 50, right, in the guidebook, and then there's much less than 50 in the gallery, which obviously for our space makes a ton of sense. But I wanted to know, like, did you think about, are you going to continue this project? Are you going to make more of them? Do you think this leads into a different thing where maybe the pavilions are not the focus? I don't know. I was just curious about that. Yeah, so the pavilions that are actually realized into architectural models in the show, I've seen them as main pavilions, quote unquote, yes. of these different zones of the fair. And a lot of them were sort of conceived initially as like, okay, these are these touch points that we want to hit, and that'll be its own zone. And then the book was helping flush out some of those different ideas within, with, under that umbrella of whether it's science and education or the American home or whatever. But then also we had a moment where when we're making the book, it was like, oh, wait a minute, all this stuff about like soft diplomacy and this international elements, like, oh, I think we need another pavilion, for example. Right. Again, right. a main pavilion for a main zone. Um, whereas all of the supporting quote-unquote pavilions or events or misting stations or all these things that are in the book, I don't, I don't think that they necessarily need architectural models. Um, but actually, this is a good segue because we're now talking about like future plans. And what I think is making the most sense is taking those different zones and then going deeper dive into them. For example, I'm actually going to do uh, another show, a solo show at the Shirley Fitterman Art Center in September. And so, which is very exciting. And um, so for that show, we're taking that American Home Pavilion, which sort of talks about white flight, but also a bunch of other things of the, the violence of the suburbs. And then having some elements of what's physically present in the Field Project show right now, but then expanding the American Home into almost like a model home showroom that will have furniture and some new sort of collage works on paper and like a lot of the wallpaper and things like that. And then also a new book. Yeah, so, and this is gonna continue. Um, we're basically subverting all of these mid-century, um, you know, informational formats. So the Sears catalog, we did a recipe book together about um, US corporate malfeasance in Latin America and like the hand in glove relationship between the CIA and United Fruit. And um, then the World's Guide, World's Guide, World's Fair guide you know about obviously so basically there's this um long island living magazine that's also sort of a directory for local services and ads for banks which of course would only give certain loans to certain people that uh is called a thousand lanes specifically we, for levittown for yeah it is but it was published in beth page so hey um but, <laughs> but like so um yeah yeah like long island like yeah it's 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 yeah. in the blood unfortunately um but <laughs> <laughs> but um, but basically, um, that, so we're going to take this and um, also have that be another adjacent component of the show that also can live as a book in stores, which is what the other ones are all doing too. They all have their own little, you know, side hustles in private lives. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that you're providing like such public education for everyone. <laughs> that this is like alternative public education that you should be getting in high school and you don't. Um, you know, like I live in Flushing now and I grew up on Long Island in Riverhead, um, but Beth Page is like right. close enough, you know. Um, so, I mean, it really like, I feel this on a personal level about the way that the space of Long Island and Queens and Brooklyn are structured. Um, and I just wanted to clarify for your readers and your viewers, the map in the front of the book 
all of those colors are the main zones. Is that right? Yes. Okay, great. So for people who want to pick up a copy of the guidebook, you know in the very front there's a map and it has different colors and the pavilions that are in the exhibition right now at Field Projects correspond to all of those colors. So I guess like going from there, the next question that I wanted to ask about the pavilions, it could be physically existing pavilions or ones that you touch on in the guidebook. Do you have like a particularly favorite one for each of you? Or like one that really, the way that I was just saying that all of the conversation, especially with the new Long Island project that you're doing and Levittown, um, really resonates with me because of my personal history. Is there one that maybe you feel more affected by or no? Do they all feel like kind of equally impactful? Um, okay, so I mean, I basically, I kind of laid my cards on the table. I'm with you on the Long Island one. and. Um, all of the terrible cancers in my family um, and the reason that a lot of people just aren't around right now um, have to do with, um, you know, I, I'm pretty convinced all of that environmental, um, you know, fallout from uh, the, the industries that were there. And, the, you know, Grumman was the, um, Grumman Aircraft, uh, for people who don't know, was the uh, main employer, was the number one employer on Long Island in the post-war yeah. years. And, you know, so it's like this idea that, you know, you have this place that's heavily, deliberately segregated and, um, you know, it's creating certain opportunities for people, but through that military-industrial complex, and it's also giving everybody who got those opportunities horrible diseases. And um, that's my family history. So, you know, one of the pavilions is the Long Island Breast Cancer Cluster uh, pageant, and um, it sounds really flippant, but it's not. That is probably the one for me that, you know, when I thought it up, I just, that, oh shit, like there it is, you know, and, um, you know, so, and that, and that again is something that I touch upon and kind of like leave it all on the dance floor at the end about the family history there specifically. Um, but, but, you know, yeah, that, that there's no question for me that that is the most personal one anyway. So, you know, impactful beyond that, somebody else can tell me what's impactful beyond that. I mean, I totally get it. I grew up really close to Grumman also, you know, and now my sister, I mean, I'm doing nothing to fix this, but my sister sister now is like cleans groundwater <laughs> it's like her job that's amazing um, that's so, amazing and yeah. johanna do you feel like any of them or do you feel really close to kind of all of them because you worked on all of the main ones um in like physically building them in the space yeah i don't it'd be really hard because i like or i feel drawn to certain ones for different reasons mm -hmm. so i think conceptually the one that i think the American Home Pavilion was one of the first ones that I was really thinking about in a deep way um, yeah. in terms of growing up. I mean, I grew up in a, in a sort of strange place because it was like the nexus of like rural and suburban and also was like a five minute drive from a small city. So it was kind of this strange in between these things. It wasn't a totally suburban experience, um, but still really kind of racially segregated. Um, and coming to terms with why that place is the way that it is. Um, and so, so the sort of segregation and the, and the history of housing policy in the U.S. was something that I was deeply researching before I even knew what this whole World's Fair project was going to be about in terms of the show. So to yeah. me, that one feels the most um, pointed and like I feel really closest to that one. And however, like in terms of like visually, I f it's not my favorite one. 
<laughs> so like uh, visually and design wise, I would definitely say it's the science and education pavilion, which is yeah. the Kennedy. It's basically the Kennedy Space Center with the Saturn V rocket, but then there's a swastika embedded in the top of the NASA building. And it's like purple and and orange and just yeah. with like this like minty green kind of color. And I just I just felt like it ended up working really well. And I think that like whenever you put a swastika in something, it's so jarring that I was really hoping that it would really even if you're sort of casually very quickly looking at all these different things in the show, it's like you really can't. You know it's not a happy place. And yeah. that one's special to me too, because um, I actually, um, Joanna and another friend of ours had never seen Dr. Strangelove. And we went and watched Dr. Strangelove together. And um, that was that, you know, that's, that's the thin end of the wedge on, um, you know, Operation Paperclip and understanding what that is. And I have to say, I always knew about Operation Paperclip, which was the, basically the initiative that the government undertook uh, to bring over 1,600 former Nazi scientists to the United States after World War II and employ them in, you know, a variety of companies like Monsanto, Dow, um, you know, Boeing, and of course, NASA. And, you know, Dr. Strangelove parodies Werner von Braun when he was still at NASA. That's the Peter Sellers, one of the Peter Sellers characters in it. And um, it's searing, searing, searing satire. And it's, it's so hilarious, too. And it's just, it blows my mind that it came out in as timely a fashion as it did. Watching that was really, it was a real inspiration, just seeing that and saying, oh my God, if they could about this while these things were going on like get to it you know and um i don't know it uh it was special and it was also one of those things that through the research i always laughed at dr strange and laughed at that Werner von brown thing but then you actually read about um you know like arthur rudolph who designed the um saturn V rocket and actually tortured people in concentration camps and you know they they actually took nine people from the nuremberg trials and brought them over uh and uh it's 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 pretty wild and uh yeah and that's what this is like, I think, as a show, too, is that, you know, you see these things and you kind of vaguely know about them, maybe. But it's like we're just hoping that people can take a deeper look because we did that as we put this together, you know. Can so. you tell us about the colors, too, that you used and uh, the flocking? Yes. So the color palette of the whole show is somewhere in between sort of a late 50s, like early 60s palette. And I wanted to do that specifically. I mean, we're looking at this time period that's late 40s through late 60s for the whole show itself. But I wanted to kind of go in that very middle point because that also was a moment, if we're looking at these expos as this tool and this weapon in the Cold War, that World's Fairs definitely were, but then there were all these other expos that were happening in that time period of the US using its own, particularly cons domestic consumer products as a weapon in the Cold War, saying like, oh, well, like Soviet Union doesn't have these dishwashers or doesn't have these, you know, refrigerators. In talking to people who have family in the Soviet, family in the Soviet Union, my own family who's Slovak who grew up in Soviet Slovakia, that it was actually really effective. You know, like they didn't have the stuff. And so it was a thing that, you know, actually really worked. And I'm talking about that because particularly at that time period is when you have all of these home appliances having all these wacky colors and the, the palette of the domestic space, which of course is also reflected in the palette of women's fashion and, you know, nail polish colors and all of those sort of things as being the sort of like palette of the era that I wanted to use very specifically. 
And then in terms of the texture of it with the flocking is that from the very beginning, I wanted these sculptures, which are architectural models, but they're sculptures to right. have, a, have a material distancing from just pure architectural models, particularly because they're speculative structures, right? These are structures that have never been built and never will be built. There's usually one architectural reference in terms of the Kennedy Space Center as having existing, but it's being hacked in some way. But speculative architectural models is a thing in architectural circles, and so, <laughs> By those standards, my models, you know, could be considered like quite simplistic or, or not sophisticated. So I wanted them to be firmly their own sort of sculptural entities and be distanced from traditional architectural models through the flocking material. Secondly, the flocking, because it's fuzzy, right? And because it's this like tactile, like, ooh, you know, it becomes kind of cuter. It's disarming. Um, it's not only sort of tactilely seductive, but it, it, it helps draw people in before they can intellectualize what it is that they're even looking at. Oh. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then the third yeah. thing is that if we're looking at this particular time period, this is just sort of a funny side note, but um, my dad runs a company with his brothers that they make, they do like industrial paint systems and powder coating and things like that. But the company actually got its start because my uncle started a flocking company to <laughs> flock hubcaps in the early 60s. <laughs> Like oh, talk about family, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Groovy, like we're talking full-on flower power, like burnt oranges and green, like 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 hubcaps. Um, as, as decoration or as? Oh, like for the car, like oh, okay. that would be. Um, was not very successful. Uh, so they <laughs> they pivoted because the technology of of flocking, if you're going to do electrostatic uh, flocking, is the same as powder coating. Um, and so they pivoted then towards powder coating also at the time in terms of like green movement um, as being a sort of a fume free uh, way of painting things. So it kind of, they moved in that direction. But I just, this funny thing, and I've always been really interested in, in flocking things oh, like that. Is, like, read <laughs> oh, well, a very quick thing in the book and it says um, it's an ad for yeah, super Kinnick Tone, I think it is. Uh, no man yeah. who owns his own house and a lot can be a communist. He has too yeah. much to do. <laughs> William uh, Levitt. Yeah, from William Levitt. Yeah. 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 I have an advertising yeah. question too, but what did well, you want to ask? I, well, about I just that? thought that was pretty interesting about the um I mean one that's a very interesting statement, right? Like to if we keep our all of our citizens occupied, they really won't have a chance to intellectualize anything and think about what is the what does community mean? What does communism yeah. mean? Are they related? And and you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but like making consumers out of out of the people and like forcing consumerism to keep the the people within the a certain uh, class situation. And so much of the guidebook too really does point out how much the World's Fair was about communism and socialism versus capitalism and this idea of the Soviet Union, um, which I think we all feel deeply connected to in various different ways in our personal life, both of you too, I think, especially. Um, and there's another ad too that talks about, it's I think the very first one, and it says like, women will go and clean the moon. Oh. Um, and I was thinking also about like the combination of not just um, this like anti-commie attitude, but also this like exporting of the domestic ideal that you talk about as well. And I think those are both really tied to each other. So could you talk a little bit just about the advertisements in the guidebook, um, either the one Jacob brought up or that first one? 
Well, um, so first of all, a word from our sponsors. One of the things that we, um, we have new text that's going on the back of the book for when it's for sale at uh, the stores that it's going to be for sale at and also at Freeze, um, you know, uh, later this month. We, you know, one of the things that I've been saying to explain this project and is now going to be on the back of the book is that the future was always brought to you by ExxonMobil. And something that's really critical about understanding the 39 World's Fair versus the 64 World's Fair is that there was a governing body that sanctioned all of the World's Fairs and gave funding, and they did not sanction the 1964 World's Fair, but because Robert Moses would not hear no, it happened anyway, and it went heavy on the corporate sponsorship. And um, even my dad's best friend from you know middle school and high school, who I interviewed in the course of putting this together, said that he remembers all of the adults who had been to the Thirty Nine World's Fair saying that it was a sellout fair, and uh, you know that it was too commercial. And you know, and he was like, "We don't care. We're like thirteen. It doesn't matter." But like you know, but basically. Um, it's, um, it's a very crucial difference, and it's also why, to me, I was always more drawn to the 64 World's Fair as, um, as, as source material because that public-private partnership uh, really feels current. So that's just something to like get on this that was just totally always sponsored by corporations. But to your question about the William Levitt quote, I remember during all of the Black Lives Matter protests after, um, after George Floyd died, um, we, there, there was this debate. And I remember a lot of people saying like the only reason that these protests are happening right now is because no one has a job that they have to go to. And it's like, you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. And um, it's something that we kind of got to see in real time over the past couple of years that, you know, once everybody, once the economy reopened, people stopped getting out in the streets and screaming about things. And it is because you're too preoccupied showing up at work and paying rent and, uh, you know, raising kids and doing everything else. It just takes up a lot of time. And all of those norms are enforced by the advertising that we have in this book and, um, you know, and by a lot of these government structures. So yeah, that was, it's a very important quote to the book. Yeah, it's really fucking sad. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I, just, I need to say that. Um, it's really fucking sad that that is the case, right? Like that there's so many people who feel desperation all the time. And yet most people redirect that desperation into their jobs. Like I'm totally experiencing this right now all the time <laughs> where I had a big revelation about like, oh my God, I've put so much time and effort into this job that I've worked at for many years now. And... I need to leave it so I can feel desperate about things that matter and <laughs> not desperate about this like corporate job that I have. Um, so sorry, side note, you were going to say too. Well, um, you have these little sort of badges on a couple of the ads and it says it's for real. Like, is that a real, because that's a real ad? Yes. So like the one that you mentioned, Chris, that was the, um, it was the less oil. Yeah, less oil. My mom actually remembered that ad. She was like, oh, I remember that. Yeah. You thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> Which is a cleaning product. And it says, uh, women, it says women of the future will make the moon a cleaner place to live. Um, and, you know, and so, yeah. so some of them were just so outrageous. That it was like, we're just putting this whole thing in here. We're just putting a little sticker saying it's real. But yeah. what I thought in terms of like that as an example is also like, the the sheer lack of imagination of we can envision ourselves on the moon but like the you know the misogyny stays the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, same gender structure. Like, exactly. 
you know, and it just, and there's so much of that stuff, you know, yeah. it's like, we can imagine these utopic futures, but we can never imagine like desegregating our housing situation. Yeah. You know, it's like, um, like how firmly entrenched these power structures are in the psyche of people that it really sort of limits our ability to think about anything that could be outside of that. Yeah. I mean, for me, especially as a medievalist, I see it as a lot about, um, religion as well and the way that religion is actually worked into government and into corporations um or religious and moral structures and ideas about the world and how it functions which i hope we get to talk more about not today maybe in this podcast but we're going to have a round table very soon um and i think we'll end up talking more about religion there so let's just like put a pin in that thought but i think i hope i want to come back to that um so the other things too um i love knowing that the yes it's real sticker really means like this is fucking it's real. ripped straight from the original guy well because yeah. ju just to explain because i guess most people listening to this will not have like read the book as much as that crushes me um but you know i think that um you know every we we, we juxtapose appropriated texts so a really easy one to understand again in the american home area is um we have a Tupperware ad and we put Betty Friedan's, um, you know, feminine mystique in it. So, you know, you see this old actual Tupperware ad and then pretty much in the same font or a similar font, you will see this text that, you know, brings it into some kind of relief. And part of those stickers, too, is to say we're not doing that here. This just exists in a not manipulated way here. So that was the other thing that's important about those stickers. Yeah, that's what I was, I, I'm just, I kind of figured that was what was yeah. going on, but I, it is, it's so amazing to see something so uh, tone deaf. So uh, satire is best when it's uh, so close to reality that you have to question it, right? And then, and and just to the, to the point of that you don't have to actually make satire out of this stuff. It, as time goes on, it becomes satire because it's it's so I don't know out of touch at, even at the probably time right. But but it's also just horrifying too. Like in the urban renewal section, uh, there's just an ad for slum clearance, and they just say slum clearance, and that's that's real. You know, that's not funny at all. That's not gonna that's not gonna age any better. You know, and it's just um, it's it's kind of like this idea of, and I think you know coming back to the whole violence of utopia, who gets to decide what the future looks like and who has to move and who yeah. is going to get erased. And um, this idea that like framing um, poverty is a hygienic uh, concern, um, that's dark. And that's something that still happens, you know, this kind of like poor and dirty thing and not seeing that as, as an under-resourced community problem. And we're all in the same city together. We're all on the same planet together. And um, that approach to problem solving of just slum clearance, like this is a degenerate, degraded place, so just wipe it off the map and who cares who lives here, they're not worth thinking about. And that informs I mean, our urban planning. That literally just happened with Eric Adams clearing oh. out the unhoused settlement. Yeah. You know, like like what, two weeks ago? Yeah. Just yeah, I and I also wanna in our future Rama Rama part of this book, which is kind of where we 
bring everything forward into what actually what hell hath been wrought and we say you know it's like welcome back to 1939 because <laughs> that's kind of where we feel like we are right now um but you know i you know put something in there about winning a night at the lucerne because it's also like that sort of idea where you find there's this hotel on the upper west side where they were housing um people who didn't have anywhere else to sleep during the pandemic and they were able to have stability and many of them got jobs and it was like that's a great solution you have an empty hotel like you know put some people in there and you know this neighborhood that I'm sure thinks of itself as pretty liberal got everybody out of there and it was something that I was very up in arms about and I you know it was something I wrote a lot about at the time but it was uh you know it was it was shameful and I remember there was one woman out there with a sign that said Yimby, like yes in my backyard instead of Nimby and I was like that's so cute but you don't see that you know yeah so how do we solve all this <laughs> We're not in the solutions business. Uh, yeah, no. I, I mean, yeah. I, I personally, I just think that uh, you know, all politics is local, and I think that that's another thing that is important about the fact that this is a New York-focused book. It's that it's when the World's Fair came to Queens, and thinking about it, your your perspective on the world, you can't get away from it, and that's also why it's telling that the two of us are talking about the American home um, because you know we're like white people from suburbs, basically. You know, and it's a uh, that. That's your, that's your personal experience, you know, and I feel a little guilty that I haven't been talking more about the other ones because I could. But at the same time, I think, you know, getting outside of your perspective is really important. And, you know, being open to learning about all these other histories is a step in that direction. So while I said that we're not in the solutions business, I do think that this is a corrective. And I think that there's an, 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 an I can't talk, an inherent optimism in the act of teaching, you know, that yeah. you, you think that when you're telling people this is what you should know, that they'll act differently. It's not like just some <laughs> big act of, act of passive aggression, you know, it's uh, they behave differently and think about things differently and see things differently. So I think that it's part of the solution. Yeah, and I kind of said that flippantly, but uh, yeah. <laughs> because one, I, one I do want, I I'm always asking for solutions, but uh, yeah. but two, I don't think it's an artist's job to create or, or to like give the solution, so to speak. But I also don't think that you know solutions cannot come from uh, yeah. an artist project or something to that effect. Yeah. Um, but I know that this is just more of a pointer and a, a kind of like yes. Like, I mean, one of the solutions you offer is local politics, right? Like getting involved in local politics and working from the ground up, which is like yeah. super hard and unrewarding, and, and but like really does make a huge difference. Um, so I totally agree with that. And I also think the important thing about a project like this is it talks about how you got to the perspectives that you have, right? Or like how you got to the kind of blindnesses that you have. Like we all have blindnesses, right? Or we all have inherent bias, um, which is like kind of another way of, similar way of talking about that. Um, and like, how did I develop this shit, right? Like, why do I think the way that I think? And I think this kind of like, exactly what you were saying, Jacob, like this sarcastic closeness to the truth um, and this sarcastic closeness to the untruth that's being told and kind of like pulling that apart and opening it. I mean, we are not going to talk about post-truth like for a long time right now in this. But, you know, that was like a hot word when Trump was first elected because we were all kind of thinking about that. Right. Um, and the ways that truth was told really differently to different people and how how different ideas about what is real develop and ferment. Um, and I think that at the core of this exhibition, it's about being in the future looking back, 
right? Like we're in the present moment and we're looking back at people who are looking to a future that was, as you said, unimaginative. You should be working and you should be cleaning. If you're a woman, you should go to the moon and clean like whatever, right? One of the things that as we're talking about like, like either solutions based or like what the, the sort of looking back looks like and the kind of telling of these of these narratives that were purposefully obfuscated depending on where you grew up and what your education was and like what neighborhood you lived in is that throughout this whole thing and you know this is coming from myself as an educator but then also um you know as someone who is very deeply passionate about activism and and different you know all the subject matter that i'm dealing with in my work is something that's also very part of my life practice is that like we kept talking about you know, through the, the book collaboration, like how do you really connect the dots for people back through these histories to mm-hmm. understand, as you said, like why we have the viewpoints that we have, but in a way that like you can't argue with it. Like we always, we talked about like, okay, well my, I have this like idea of my libertarian cousin. <laughs> where it's like, how do we, if he- Our went, muse. Exactly. Where it was always like, because you know you hear the sort of devil's advocate of those sound mm-hmm. bites that are always the countering point to whatever when you say when you try to talk about structural inequities and it's like oh well he would say this thing or whatever so then it's like no no, no. how do we like literally say well, like this happened and then that this happened and then that happened and these things all together are why this looks like it does or why people think about this in a certain way um and so that sort of like educational didactic element is really important to me, to us. Yeah, no, I completely second all of those emotions. Then the only other thing that I would want to say is that, you know, I think that you have to come to subject matter with some kind of love for it or some sort of emotional affinity or seeing yourself in it or whatever you want to call it. So like what I would just say to like go back to the idea that it was all consumerist propaganda is what I'm jealous of from that period of time though, is that, you know, there was like this like looming threat of nuclear Holocaust the whole time, but people were really dreaming about the future and we don't do that anymore because we grew up in a very, very optimistic time. Both of us kind of like came of age between the fall of the Berlin wall and the nine 11 ter- terror attacks. And, um, you know, it's been a real whiplash and that's like the millennial experience right there. But when I look back at the World's Fair, I also see these people who really had a love of the future. And it's like when you look at NASA too, yes, it was the Cold War. Yes, it was Nazis who came up with it. But at the same time, holy shit, we put somebody on the moon. Like that's amazing. And daring to dream of the rest of the universe is uh, like that, that, that's the stuff that keeps you going. And um, so yes, it was propaganda. Um, and yes, that was something that, uh, you know, you can't talk about this without the consumerism and the sponsorship and all of that. But at the same time, that animating, uh, you know, kind of love of the future is something to satirize, but it's also something to kind of look back on and think about, wow, how do we get back to that point where we're thinking about the future in a happy way uh, as a place that we want to live in? Totally. Yeah. And that was actually something I was going to ask you, but you already answered again. <laughs> You're preempting all of my questions, which is just like, is there anything admirable? And I, I agree. I mean, I think that like the idea of hopefulness um, and especially like as we were talking, you know, it's easy to start to feel like, oh, my God, <laughs> the world like just feel really bogged yeah. down and horrible. And I think there is something really beautiful about this idea of looking back to a time when the future maybe felt like it could be open. But this idea of like. The World's Fair is a place that you can go. You look at the face that you're making, dude. <laughs> well, what uh, do you want to... 
Well, I mean, the qualifier is that that the future is open to a certain population. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's all there. It's like yeah, and then and who's deciding what the future looks like is really problematic. It's all these awful corporations and like Robert freaking Moses, you know. That's not not I, that that to me is suboptimal, uh, you know. And um, you know, it's it's kind of again like Joanna said, it's like it's asking how we got here and uh, you know creating that narrative and medievalist over here re retrodicting a little bit, you know. So that to me is uh, is, is sort of the the core of the project. But at the same time, there needs to to be a spirit that's not just like leaden and you know crapping on something and saying this is terrible please come to our terrible exhibit about something terrible <laughs> so, you also, know yeah there's yeah um, but also I was gonna say like in in my practice when I am making the like the physical things that are in the show I always think about it as being this sort of trifecta of having something that you know is speaking about usually pretty terrible history really dark stuff uh, heavy intense shit and then on, it's really easy to do like super heavy and upsetting stuff and really sexy things <laughs> Sexy and disturbing, easy, piece of cake, right? But to make something that's like, and the sexy part would be like to bring people in, right? To seduce people into paying attention to what you're talking about. But then the third thing is to have something that has an element of charm to it. Or, you know, or like when you see something and you feel nostalgic like it is kind of this charming and that charm as being like disarming to a certain extent and to have all three of those things happening at once that to me is where there's something interesting in between those because you're like horrified but you're seduced by it but then you also it, it taps into something that is sort of has a pleasurableness in it that is charming, you know? And then it's like, and then when you get in between those three things, it's really a mind fuck. And it's like, if I can get there, then I think that that is the most potent area. And I think that that's also the colors that you yeah. use, you know, it's always like, she's like taught me so much about color theory. Um, but you know, but basically that, that, that brings back the nostalgia for what this time looked like and for what these appliances were and the way that you relate to your past through consumer choices and American decline is like a consumer experience, you know, but it's kind of like that, you know, it kind of, it's, it's invidious and it brings you in because you see these happy colors that are the colors of things that you want to buy. And this is what you bought. You bought 2022. Congratulations. Sheesh. <laughs> um, we we've talked a little bit about like favorites and stuff um if yeah. you feel like there's one that you want to talk about though that we haven't gotten to like i don't know which one um the lorraine motel Oh, yeah. yeah, I think one of the ones that I wanted to talk about was basically the Lorraine Motel is, um, I think it's the one that for me, I was surprised at how well it works on this in the space because all it's these the, sculptures it's are... the communications pavilion. Right, and, but the, all these sculptures are on rotating plinths. So essentially for the communications um, pavilion, uh, Joanna made the a model of the Lorraine Motel, which is where um, MLK was assassinated in 1968. But when it turns around, you can see that it's recording equipment and there's tape reels on top of it because um, the FBI, um, with the warrant that was signed by RFK, uh, was surveilling him uh, just horribly um, throughout his career. And um, what works well in the space, I think about it, is that it looks like it's an appliance that's for sale and it's like slowly rotating. And um, that, that one to me is really a fact 
active and it was also an idea that enabled us to kind of get into that pavilion in the book's representation of it of you know this idea that we create and celebrate once they're dead these civil rights icons but they're just completely hounded by the state apparatus the entire time that they're around COINTEL pro was formed around MLK and uh you know it's it's just it's heartbreaking and um yeah and in that in that section too one of the things that I was really moved to learn about and I, ve I knew you know of Malcolm X's travels around the world and you know I didn't know though that he uh went to Ghana and met up with Maya Angelou and they came up with a campaign to go around to various African countries and try to bring uh, human rights violations and genocide charges against the United States and um no one would bite because they were all getting cold war aid and that's where you know this american state surveillance of civil rights leaders and the cold war all kind of came together in this one place and it's such a terrible thing to learn about but at the same time it kind of I think validated a lot of the choices that uh, you know we made when you know because you start out on a project and you research and do you research your way further into the project or do you research your way out of it and say this isn't working and that was really a moment of researching into it and it was yeah rewarding and horrible at the same time. I thought it was really great that you also started with a Malcolm X quote like the guidebook begins with this quote from Malcolm X um, where he's kind of talking about there's no more corrupt system than a system where you basically can't vote, right? A system that keeps people from voting um, and yeah. that denies access to civil rights, basically, um, voting being one of those. So could you talk a little bit about selecting that first quote? Did you talk to each other about it? Like, how did that come about? Yeah, uh, we should actually, I read it? yeah, I think you should read it. And then, yeah. So... Malcolm X says, there is no system more corrupt than a system that represents itself as the example of freedom, the example of democracy, and can go all over this earth telling other people how to straighten out their house when you have citizens of this country who have to use bullets if they want to cast ballots. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, we, there were a couple of other quotes that are in the book that were vying for that spot. One of them wound up in my essay about uh, the need to invent the devil, which is um, a Dostoevsky quote. There was another one, Robert Caro's The Power Broker. I mean, Robert Caro just was the lift of this book. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> it's just, he wrote about Robert Moses's projects. Um, he talks about how the bridge is basically built metropolis, you know, that you have these, that, that the city did not exist as one single entity that you could drive between until Robert Moses came along and that the bridges were built with enough uh, cables to drop a noose around the world. That was a quote that is now in the transportation pavilion. But, um, but you know, again, I was just sort of going through material and it was when I was reading about Malcolm X's trip to Ghana that I came across that quote of his and I, you know, was watching some interviews with Maya Angelou and, um, you know, I, uh, I think I texted it to Joanna and we were like, okay, that's it. The other was, two, they're out, they're gone. Yeah. I was like, hundred percent. As soon as I read that quote, I was like, oh, this oh, is this, an embodiment of yeah, the entire project. The, yeah, 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 yeah. So thank and, you to him. Yeah. yeah. And interestingly, too, like, wasn't he talking about the Peace Corps with that quote, like the larger conversation? 
It was um, about soft diplomacy, yeah, yeah. and um, about, yeah, about our goodwill tours. And um, these, these expos, and also another shout out has to go to uh, Robert Haddow, who wrote Pavilions of Plenty, which is the introduction for that is excerpted in the book, and it's all about how um, these, these expos and World's Fairs were weapons in the Cold War, and you put in this lovely picture of the kitchen debate, you know, <laughs> where uh, Chris Jeff's like pointing, like, and Nick's just pointing at each other, like men pointing at each other in a model kitchen, and uh, that was the Cold War too, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, oh, okay. Well, I was going to ask then to talk about the last quote of the book. Um, mm. Mm. Okay. First and last. Yeah. And then nobody has yeah. to read the book. See? I, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I can get into, I can, there are two, two last quotes. Do you mean both of them? Or the, okay. <laughs> so, um, so. Well, I was just going to yeah. say, you decided to end it with these two quotes and I thought that yeah. was pretty interesting. So um, this first one is um, over everything, up through the wreckage of the city in gutters, along the riverbanks, tangled among the tiles and tin roofing, climbing on charred tree trunks, was a blanket of fresh, vivid, lush, optimistic green. The verdancy rose even from the foundations of ruined houses. Weeds already hid the ashes, and wildflowers were in bloom among the city's bones. The bomb had not only left the underground organs of the plants intact, it had stimulated them. And that's from John Hersey's Hiroshima. And then the other one is, um, for there is a hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. And that's from the book of Job. So and this is paired with um, a picture of cherry blossoms that are all uh, in bloom around the Unisphere. And um, basically where this came from is my dad went to the World's Fair with his um, best friend who I interviewed for this book. You know, and he lost his mother when he was a kid to cancer. I lost him and, you know, and it's one of these things where basically, um, I'm like getting choked up talking about this, but basically Billy was, um, his, his friend said that he was hiking around the World's Fairgrounds many years later. His partner is, uh, is a guy who's a World's Fair nut, which is just great. It's like chef's kiss. And basically they were hiking around and he realized that, you know, as he's a horticulturist and uh, that there were these uh, katsura trees and that katsura trees were in the World's Fair. They exist in the fairgrounds because seeds had dropped from the South Korean pavilion. He looked up where this was and he saw that. And um, one of the things that he said cracked up my father, and I know that it cracked him up is that uh, there was this part of the GM pavilion where they had the Amazon being cut down by lasers and it was seen as a technological invention and apparently my dad went to the like World's Fair a dozen times with Bill and every time he just laughed his ass off at that it was you've got to be kidding me and would do like imitations of the lasers like cutting down trees and the funny thing is that you know I was thinking about also the Paul Simon song Boy in the Bubble which and he's from Queen and that song's kind of about the World's Fair and there are lasers in the jungle somewhere is one of the lyrics in there. And, um, you know, this notion that the lasers in the jungle did not prevail at the end, that at the end there was a tree that grew from a seed that was accidentally dropped in from, you know, everybody coming from around the world to throw this fair, that the tree won in the end. So those quotes are about the trees coming back in Hiroshima. And, you know, the same thing with the Book of Job. It's, uh, you know, there had to be some note of optimism at the end there for me. And it's that. It's nature taking things back in some way and finding its own ingenuity to come through. Wow. Okay. 
I read it as uh, the systematic problems that we can't that we cut down that keep coming back. <laughs> yeah, that too. But yeah, so you know that was where I was coming at it from. Um, you know, it was kind of like I got off the phone with Bill and I was like, ooh, yeah. we're ending with trees. Yeah. <laughs> I thought the great thing about it is that it could go that it was about regrowth. It was, yep. it was about destroying and regrowth, but it was also it was un it could be seen as as the you know as both as both right. of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's and both it, hopeful, but it's also, like, keep working. I was just at the fairgrounds yesterday, um, and I was with my friend Helen, and we were walking around, and I texted Kara, because I was like, oh, it's also thinking about, like, you know, the Flushing Fairgrounds was Robert Moses's like, baby, right? Like, he twice tried to have that, like, the World's Fair almost as, I mean, not almost, like, as an excuse to get money to make his big park that was going to be, like, you know, the cherry on top of his career, and it never happened for him. Um, and him being this sort of historic, like, racist and classist person. And walking around the fairgrounds yesterday, um, I was, like, pleasantly joking that I was the only white person I saw the entire time I was there. I was there for a couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, it's all just like immigrant communities, like mostly Central American, like having barbecues and playing sports and stuff like that. And I was just like, there's some small justice in that, that it's yeah. this like thriving immigrant community that has sort of taken over and repurposed that fairground. So there's, there's some optimism there. Yeah, that is super cool. And that's something that Queens is really generally amazing for, right? Um, yep. You know... I mean, I'm super happy that you were able to both sit down and meet with us today. And I feel like this is sort of the beginning of a conversation and project for you. This is the culmination of a project with us at Field Projects. Um, but this does feel like there's so much here to work on, yeah. right? Um, and you have a lot of things coming up. So maybe you could just tell us if you have dates or things that you want to tell everyone who's listening, like... What's going on with you? What are you doing next? I know you're doing Freeze and the book is going to be at Printed Matter. Can you say a couple of things? Yeah, so um, we are just waiting for the first full printing of uh, books to ship to um, my house. And um, it's going to be for sale at Printed Matter, the whole gallery, and uh, the Perrotown Gallery Bookstore. And um, Printed Matter is going to be taking all three of our titles um, to freeze, and that is May 18th to May 22nd. So I sort of there's going to be a reimagining as I mentioned before of some of the elements from the field projects show plus the model home that's going to happen at the Shirley Fitterman Art Center which is part of Cooney at the Manhattan Borough Community College in Tribeca that's going to be in September I don't have an exact date but something like maybe second week in September uh so that's happening the show in Cologne oh well oh yeah, yeah. well yeah <laughs> well, I mean yeah <laughs> I have a solo show coming up in November with Ga Gallery in Cologne that's exciting yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, and then uh, we're going to be doing the New York Art Book Fair with the whole gallery, too. Okay. So, yeah, that's and the other cool. one. And that'll be October 22nd. So, yeah. Awesome. So you have a lot of things coming up. You have a little bit yeah. of a break over the summer, and then you're, like, diving into stuff. Sort of. Mm, sort of. Yeah. Not really. Yeah. Not really. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I was about yeah. to be like, you have a break. No, you no, don't. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's why we were together in the studio on a Sunday anyway. So, Yeah. <laughs> Back to the um, not knowing the word workaholic because it's just your life yeah. <laughs> comment yes. from earlier. Um, yes. um, I'm actually in a couple weeks about to head to a residency in the Arctic Circle. And then I 
come back for like a week and then I go to Thailand to work at my nonprofit for like a month. And then when I come back, I basically have to just immediately start uh, production for the September show. So. Yeah. Yeah. So super busy. I can't believe you left out the Arctic Circle. And <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really yes. cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd love to know more about that residency when you're done. Um, yeah, that sounds super amazing. Do you have final comments or questions? No, but it's uh, the show is pretty amazing. And I just really appreciate you doing it with us. And I hope that we gave you this, you know, the space and uh, we didn't we weren't on your ass too much, you know. <laughs> no, thank you so much. I really like. I can't tell you how how much it means that you know. I had this sort of nebulous idea for kind of a long time, and it really only congealed at the end. And your patience and openness that it would all work out was very valuable. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. and we cannot go without me saying this is the best thing that has ever happened to the curtain at Field Projects. So oh. everyone <laughs> needs to come see that there is a beautiful curtain where our normal canvas curtain usually is over our storage space. So it's a great use of the space. You really thought it out. I mean, the floor is tiled with linoleum. We didn't even say that, I think. Um, so the, it really takes over the space and transforms it into the aesthetics of, you know, the 50s, 60s, 40s a little bit. It's just like very, very moving and puts you into that time and place. So I'm really grateful you did the exhibition with us. And thank you so much for chatting with us tonight. We're excited to see all of your upcoming projects. Like, keep everyone informed. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk to you again. Thank you so much. Yeah. We're super stoked. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> thank you. That was super great. That was a great interview. Yeah. Um, why don't we transition into talking about Go See yeah yeah let's so. do it is that what we're doing heck yeah <laughs> uh do you have any recommendations that jump off the top of your head go see the whitney biannual no fuck no <laughs> i haven't seen absolutely it absolutely <laughs> not a scam a scam every year don't well, go see it <laughs> is jennifer packer's show still up i would definitely no it's not up oh it's done Damn. Yeah. april 17th okay yeah, yeah. don't go see that I mean, the show that I want to recommend people go see is the very last show at Geary Contemporary while it's in Manhattan. Um, and it's Katherine Haggerty's solo show. It was super awesome. They are very, they're in line with her other paintings, but they feel very new to actually go see if you've gone and seen any of her other solo show work. So I want to recommend that. And I also wanted to recommend a film that just came out um, that you watch, which would be, <laughs> we have this very appropriately titled movie called We're All Going to the World's Fair. And this is a debut feature from a non-binary filmmaker named Jane Schoenbrunn. And it uses, like, I'm a huge horror fan. It uses a lot of the language of horror movies and creepypasta internet kind of fable stuff to talk about the experience of gender dysphoria. And I think it's a super fascinating movie. You should definitely go watch it if you can. And Jacob, whatever recommendations so, you have too. Yeah, I have one recommendation. Um, I love people who make art that are not artists, so to speak. Uh, people who make things because they feel like they want to make things uh, without the education or institutional stains. And May 8th it's opening, and this is a surgeon named K.C. Joseph, which is the uh, father of Melissa, the artist Melissa Joseph. 
and he was a surgeon who took out gallbladders. He would make these little photos of the gallbladder that he took out with like collage, just meaning he put down some like a newspaper and then he would do in calligraphy the name of the person who he took the gallbladder out of. And then that would be off to the side as he would be doing the surgery. He would take their gallbladder out and put it on top of this and then take a photograph of it and then give the photograph to the patient afterwards. But they're really funny and weird and um, I think it's just, it's gonna be an amazing show. Super. And that is at Soloway, S-O-L-O-W-A-Y Gallery. You don't have to spell it, I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I also wanted to say that Catherine Haggerty's show is going to be up uh, through June 4th, so you have a lot of time to go see it. It's called Living at Geary Contemporary. And then also, we're all going to the World's Fair. The film that I just recommended, you can find on like lots of platforms to buy for like about six to seven dollars. You could find it on YouTube, Amazon, whatever platform you watch. Also, it's playing at Syndicated Theater if you live in Brooklyn and you want to go have like a cocktail and watch a movie that's really awesome. You should go to Syndicated and go watch We're All Going to the World's Fair. Two more quick suggestions for shows to go see. I went to a random Upper East Side uh, show at Rosenberg & Co. featuring Marguerite Loop. Uh, it's the artist's first solo show in the U.S. She is no longer with us, and her work is mostly based on cubism and purism. Uh, it's definitely a worthwhile space to go see. And then also we have, uh, if you're in L.A., there's Katie Hector's show at The Cabin LA, which is on view through the end of May. So DM at Danny first for information. So I think those are our, what are we calling this segment? Go sees. Go sees. Go sees for the week. <laughs> <laughs> so we will catch you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been Field Pod. <laughs> Amazing. This <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>